the positive thing about this shift in the conversation towards sober curious or beginning to think about your relationship with alcohol earlier is that it's so much easier to make changes before you get to a place where you have lost control, where you are dealing with major consequences in your life. And so I love it that people are starting to be more mindful and explore their relationship with alcohol. What's going on, hurdlers? Emily Avati here. You are listening to episode 273 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. Today on the show, I am chatting all about sober curiosity with Dr. Sarah Wakeman. She's the senior medical director for the Mass General Hospital Substance Use Disorder Initiative. She's also the program director of the Mass General Addiction Medicine Fellowship and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, aka this woman has a lot of knowledge to give us on all things sober curiosity. We kick off our discussion today by defining what it means to be sober curious. And we also get into the basics surrounding alcohol use disorder, which believe it or not, is extremely widespread. Dr. Wakeman and I have a really interesting conversation about what it means to be sober curious, what incorporating this lifestyle into your everyday might look like, how to talk about your choice to forego alcohol if this is something that is important to you. And that is really purposeful, knowing your why. If you are someone that wants to reduce the amount of alcohol you're drinking, being specific about your why behind it, just like any major lifestyle change, when you have a firm why, you can articulate why this specific act is important to you, you are more likely to stick with it. So we chat about that. And I also shed some light on what it was like for me to cut down on alcohol over the past year, specifically last January. I did a little experiment of sorts that really taught me a lot about myself, about the circumstances in which I was reaching for alcohol, really helped shape my perspective on my personal relationship with drinking. As always, love interacting with you about these episodes. So if you love what you're listening to, share it on social, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, and tag Hurdle. You can find the podcast over on social at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And if you have any more questions on sober curiosity or anything else, I am all ears. You can ask me a question by leaving me a voice message. The link to do that is in the show notes and be featured in an upcoming episode of the show. With that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Sarah Wakeman. She's the Senior Medical Director for Substance Use Disorder at Mass General. Brigham, how are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. This is a topic that I have wanted to chat with someone about for some time, and I was waiting for the right person 
to do it with. So I couldn't be happier that we're here to sit down today and chat a little bit about sober curiosity, alcohol consumption, all the things. Over the last few years, the concept of sober curiosity has been trending like wildfire. Is that what you're finding in your practice as well? You know, I'm seeing it more and more just as a member of society and being on social media and reading about it. And as an addiction specialist, you know, I think it's great that we're starting to talk more about the full spectrum of substance use and recognizing that it is a spectrum, that people can fall anywhere along that from not using any type of substance, including alcohol, to using in a way that doesn't have any problems associated with it, to using in a way that maybe you just feel like you don't like the impact on your life or the way you feel after drinking, or um, it may be affecting a relationship or your work but you don't actually meet criteria for what we think of as alcohol use disorder. And then all the way, of course, to that far end of the spectrum. And that's so important because for a long time, I think we've only thought of substance use problems as being really a binary. Either you have a problem or you don't. And the reality is that's not true. It is a full continuum. And so expanding that conversation in the general public, I think, is a really, really important change. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point to uh, shed some light on here is that there is such a spectrum on what different levels of uh, substance abuse might look like. Now, first and foremost, let's talk about alcohol's impact on the body. Where do we even begin? I know there's so much. And I think, you know, my hope is to not demonize anything. And so you won't hear that from me. I think sort of stepping back, it's been really interesting to watch this swing from the kind of conversation in popular media. It used to be around sort of the protective effects of low risk drinking, you know, that it was good for your heart or that it had health related benefits. And now we've seen this very different swing that any amount of alcohol is not good for your health. Um, And I think stepping back, it's important to Um, to understand the evidence and also to not think of using alcohol as a health promoting behavior. You know, if you are looking to improve your health, there's no amount of alcohol that is going to be sort of beneficial in terms of your health outcomes. Now, that doesn't mean um, that it's a black and white or that using lower risk amounts of alcohol are hugely detrimental to your health. But just we shouldn't be thinking about starting drinking as a healthy thing, just like, you know, there are other habits like exercise or brushing your teeth where it's pretty much more is better or up to a point. And that's not going to be the case of alcohol. Um, you know, more recent evidence has, has really expanded our understanding of the health harms of alcohol use, in particular cancer risk. Um, for women, that's really relevant because any amount of alcohol use is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. Um, but there's also all different types of cancer that are associated with alcohol use, including cancers of your stomach and your intestinal tract, um, liver cancer, breast cancer, as I mentioned, um, and then other health problems from everything sort of Uh, relatively minor like acid reflux or heartburn to much more severe problems. And then as an addiction specialist, of course, we worry about alcohol use disorder, which is also a chronic health condition that can cause um, really huge impacts on people's lives and their physical and mental health. So when it comes to uh, alcohol use disorder, talk to me about what characterizes that. Yeah. So alcohol use disorder is defined as compulsively using alcohol despite bad things happening to you in your life. So we make the diagnosis based on 11 criteria, but they really boil down to a couple main buckets. Um, Wanting to control your use and not being able to. So that might look like you've tried to cut back or you've tried to stop and you found that you actually couldn't once you set your mind to it. Mm. Um, It looks like using despite consequences. So that can mean using despite having problems in your relationships, in your ability to do the things that are important to you in your life, like parent or work 
or using despite bad consequences in your health. So if a doctor has said to you, you know, you have inflammation of your liver because of alcohol use, and I recommend that you stop using alcohol and you find that you're not able to stop and you continue using despite that. And then the other main bucket is craving, which is sort of the strong psychological urge to want to use a substance. So that's the idea that you just like can't get it out of your mind. You're thinking about getting to that drink that you really find yourself um, mentally consumed by the idea of using alcohol. And so those are kind of the main buckets. And then depending on how many criteria you meet, you can either have a mild alcohol use disorder, a moderate alcohol use disorder, or a severe alcohol use disorder. Yeah. And, you know, listening to you explain all of these different buckets and then again, hearing the word disorder, I think so often so many individuals think, oh, it's just a drink. It's a drink every night. It's two drinks a night. It's something like this. And to hear that buzzword disorder with this can be really scary. Yeah. And I, I think that's totally true. And I think it's important to um, have these conversations and really talk honestly about the potential harms. I think the good news is that this is a very treatable health condition. And wherever you fall on that spectrum, um, it is very possible to get help and to make changes to your alcohol use. And I think the um, positive thing about this shift in the conversation towards sober curious or beginning to think about your relationship with alcohol earlier is that it's so much easier to make changes before you get to a place where you have lost control, where you are dealing with major consequences in your life. And so I love it that people are starting to be more mindful and explore their relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Dr. Wakeman, I, I uh, noticed before when we were touching upon the concept of the swinging of the media, right? And for so long, especially when I was an editor at traditional women's media outlets, we would cover studies that said things like, one glass of red wine a day is really good for you. Uh, and now, yes, it has gone completely the other way is that alcohol is awful. Alcohol is awful. Alcohol is the devil. Is there any truth to the former. Yeah. So there was long this sense of this idea that when people looked at big population studies, they found that people who drank at a low risk level, like a glass of wine a day, actually had lower rates of dying from heart disease than people who didn't drink at all or people who drank very heavily. And that's actually still true. The problem is that those studies, when you look at people who choose not to drink, it's actually a very mixed bucket. And some people who choose not to drink do so because they're really ill with other medical problems or because they're actually in recovery from alcohol use disorder. Mm. And so the newer sort of wave of population data has looked and has sort of redefined how we do the comparison groups. Now, the health harms in that low risk group are still pretty low. So I think it is important not to over pathologize or sort of over scare people about substance substance use, like, yes, there are, are linear risks to cancer association with alcohol use. And also if you're drinking, you know, under lower risk drinking limits, which is really seven drinks a week for a woman or 14 drinks a week for a man under 65, the association with significant health risk is very, very low. Um, so I think the real opportunity here is to think about people's relationship with alcohol. What positives do they get in their life? What are the downsides? What are their personal goals when it comes to their health? What's their personal family history? So if you have a strong family history of breast cancer, for example, or you're in remission from breast cancer, your decisions about alcohol are probably going to be very different from someone who does, doesn't have those risks. So I think it just opens us up to a much more nuanced conversation um, to really explore kind of the pros and cons. Definitely. So let's then transition into this conversation surrounding sober curiosity and its very foundation. What does it mean to be a sober, curious person? 
You know, I think this is one of those themes where there's not a totally clear definition, but generally it means people who are beginning to explore their relationship with alcohol and decide to have periods where they're not drinking. So a common sort of version of this that began, you know, many years ago was this idea of dry January, which was a change that people would make. They'd sort of challenge themselves to not drink for the month of January. And I think it was an interesting trend that did allow people to just sort of step back and take a pause and be more mindful about what role alcohol played in their life. And that has since expanded to people, you know, outside of January, just in their life thinking, well, maybe I don't want to drink during the week, or maybe I don't want to drink at all, or maybe I want to drink less without having to sort of, again, see this binary of like, I have an alcohol use disorder and therefore I need treatment and going into recovery. Instead, just there's a continuum here. And for whatever reason, I feel better drinking less or not drinking at all. And I'm going to make that health related choice for myself. Just for the context of this conversation, if you're comfortable sharing, do you consume alcohol? Yes, I do. Okay. So I also consume alcohol, but per your point, talking about dry January, I at the most have done what was like a modified dry January in my past where I would not drink during the week. I would allow myself to drink on Saturdays. And the other caveat was if I happened to have a date, which I actually found was a uh, a motivating way for me to try dating more last year. So I'm hearing you when you're talking about the different parameters that people place around it, just experimenting to see how they feel with or without consuming regularly. Exactly. You know, people may find that they sleep better or they feel better in the morning or they're able to get more work done in the evening if they didn't drink with dinner or that they lose some weight if that's a goal for them. Um, And so I think it's like many things, being mindful of your behaviors is actually an intervention in and of itself. So if you take something like eating or exercise, you know, often we'll encourage people as a first step to just be more mindful. Like how much are you eating? When are you snacking? Are you getting to the gym? And to sort of understand are there areas where their current behaviors are getting in the way of goals that they have for themselves. And so I sort of think of um, this sober curious as a part of that to really be mindful. Think about there may be times when having a glass of wine with dinner is a wonderful thing and it allows you to enjoy the food more, allows you to have fun, whatever social setting you're in. And that's not a bad thing. And also you may find that like, Hey, I'm drinking two or three glasses of wine a night. I feel really crummy. You know, my skin doesn't look great. I've gained some weight. I'm having more heartburn. And that's a great moment to pause and say, you know, this is not actually where I want my life to be or the way I want alcohol to be functioning in my life. And so so therefore I'm going to make this very intentional change. Yeah, we've kind of covered here some of the things that can happen if you are involving a decent amount of alcohol in your regular rotation. Inversely, let's touch on some of the health benefits that go hand in hand with lowering or cutting out your alcohol intake. Yeah, definitely. I think first, it's really important for people to have those kind of general numbers in their mind of what are lower risk drinking limits. And I mentioned that before, but I'll say it again, because I think we don't talk about it enough with the average public. So it's seven drinks a week for a woman or anyone over 65, and no more than three drinks on a drinking occasion. So you can't like save up all seven for Saturday night. You know, it's really (laughs) thinking about cutting back and thinking of your overall weekly intake. And then for men under 65, it's 14 drinks a week and no more than four on an occasion. So I think those are helpful benchmarks if you know like, oh, I have this party coming up and I know I'm likely to have two or three drinks, then maybe you don't drink during the week and you're still sort of keeping within that seven or so drink um, per week limit. And it just gives people a benchmark of what is a lower risk level. And and what that means is that in big studies, when people are drinking consistently above those limits, we start to see more health-related problems. And that can take 
lots of different forms. So we talked about cancer risk. You know, there's also risk to your liver, including sort of liver inflammation and liver fibrosis or scarring. And that's a, a really scary one that's good to mention because, you know, we've seen actually since COVID this really increasing rate of serious liver damage to very young people, like people in their 30s who are coming into the hospital in fulminant sort of at, at death's door, liver failure from alcohol use. And they had no idea that that could happen at such an early age. And those are some of the most devastating cases that I see in the inpatient hospital setting of people that literally didn't know, had no idea they could get that sick that early and are coming in and sometimes do actually die from that. So, um, so liver is a big one, but then there's also lots of other ways that, um, alcohol can impact your health and cutting back can make you feel better. So, um, one is your mood. We know that drinking alcohol can be related to worsening sort of depression and anxiety. And so cutting back or stopping may help your mood feel better. Sleep is a big one. Even though people think about alcohol helping you fall asleep, it actually leads to really disordered sleep architecture. So if you've ever drank too much, you may fall asleep easily, but then wake up feeling really not refreshed. I mean, that's a, a reminder of, of alcohol sort of disruption to your sleep. So sleep definitely gets better. Um, you know, weight, there's a lot of calories in alcohol. So if you are trying to watch your weight, if you have diabetes or prediabetes, cutting back on alcohol could be really beneficial in that way. And then drinking at high levels can actually cause heart problems and elevated blood pressure. So if you, you know, are someone who has high blood pressure or a family history of high blood pressure, you know, that's another area where you might think of cutting back. I love this term sleep architecture. I'm not entirely sure if I've heard it before referencing sleep quality. That's a super important takeaway. And I know something that I've been focusing on a lot over the last few years, a couple of things that I do want to double click on here, the seven for women versus the 14 for men. What is that based on aside from perhaps general stature between the sexes? Yeah. So um, women tend to have a higher percentage of body fat than men. And also they metabolize alcohol slightly different. So the amount of alcohol you need to get to the same sort of level of intoxication or blood alcohol content is different between biological sexes. Got it. And then you touched on uh, the liver scarring, which really like sent some whistles off in my head. Uh, you said you're seeing more and more patients coming in unsure that this could happen to them at such a young age. Helpful to hear a little bit perhaps about the symptoms that go hand in hand with that. So someone might be able to uh, have some insight on what that could look like for them. Sure. Yeah. So when you start having liver problems, the kind of spectrum that happens is first inflammation in your liver, and then that can progress to really severe what we call hepatitis, meaning your whole liver is inflamed or then even scarring, um, which at this sort of advanced end is called cirrhosis. And people have maybe heard of cirrhosis. And I think most of us have in our mind that that's something that happens to like people in their 60s after decades of drinking heavily. But we are seeing people in their late 20s, early 30s who are coming in with cirrhosis, which is really scary and, um, and something that I think is important for people to know about. If you were starting to have um, really serious liver inflammation or liver problems, the things to watch out for would be pain in the right upper side of your belly. So your liver sits right under your ribs on the right side. As that gets worse, you may see changes to your skin color. So if your skin or your eyes start looking yellow or changes to your urine, if your urine starts looking really dark, like kind of Coca-Cola colored or tea colored, um, those are some of the signs that you would see as that progresses. Super helpful. So here we're talking about how clearly there is a rise in the interest around sober curiosity clearly starting with that idea, that concept, that occasion of the dry January. Do you have any information perhaps on just how many people are trying to get on board with this movement? 
You know, I don't think there's any good data. I've looked into this, and I think because it is sort of a social movement, it's not something that's been well captured. Um, you know, I think we know most Americans consume alcohol, and many people actually will meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So around 15% of people at some point will meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So this is not an uncommon health condition. And I think, you know, if social media and news articles are, are any hint, it definitely this idea of sober curious and even the companies that are coming from it. You know, there's lots more sort of alcohol-free, interesting beverage companies that are out there that I think are um, really pitching themselves to this group of people who want to begin to think differently about how they use alcohol. Um, and so it seems to be growing in popularity, but I think the data is still limited. The alcohol alternative beverages are really interesting to me because some of them are truly taking over the shelves at both my traditional liquor store as well as within my grocery store. I do know that there are some things to be mindful of when you're looking at these beverages. Specifically, what comes first and foremost to mind is the sugar content that is in some of these. What else should you be looking at when you are looking at a non-alcoholic alternative in lieu of one of its alcoholic cousins? Yeah, I think, you know, if you are, um, well, for everyone, having a ton of sugar is not a great thing. But if certainly if you're watching your weight or if you have diabetes, being mindful of the calories and the sugar in it is important. I think the you know, the other thing to be cautious of is many of them are marketing themselves as sort of having other herbal properties that they're relaxing or that they have certain um, sort of alternative herbal products in them. And that that's always something just to be careful with because those are often unregulated in terms of what they say it's going to do. So I've seen them, you know, my Instagram feed saying it's going to, it has this vitamin in it and it's going to cause this mindfulness or relaxation. Um, and just to, to be aware that there's no sort of oversight and in, in that type of regulation. So, um, I think generally finding something fun to drink that doesn't have alcohol and is a healthier alternative, if you're making changes to your use can be a really great thing. And it gives you something, you know, that's more fun than just water. If that, if that <laughs> helps, um, and may taste good and, um, is just broadening your range of options in social settings, which can be helpful too. Yeah. You know, I feel like adaptogens are in absolutely everything now. Yes. So I hear you on all the extra little additives that we're finding in these beverages. Aside from leaning into NA options for someone who is interested in a sober, curious lifestyle, what are some other ways that they can ease into it and what should they avoid? I would say probably the first thing is to just take stock of your alcohol use. So um, I would spend a week or a month sort of journaling, like keeping track of when do you drink, what situations are you drinking in, how do you feel the next day. Um, I think that mindfulness is really important. And then if you want to make a change, any change, but especially with alcohol use, it's important to know what your why is. Um, you know, people don't change unless they have a reason to change. Change is very hard. And so it's important to have something that you're working towards and to make that as specific and sort of personalized and measurable as possible. So just saying something vague like, I'm going to cut back on alcohol because alcohol is bad. It's not very likely you're going to make that change, right? That's like a very vague sort of general statement. There's no real why there. But instead to say, you know, my goal this year is to run my first marathon. And in order to get up and do my long runs on the weekend, I need to have a good sleep. And so therefore, I'm not going to drink more than two nights a week. And I'm going to keep it to two drinks a night. Like that's a very concrete, very measurable goal that is actually linked to something that you're also working on. Or maybe it's something totally different. Maybe it's that, you know, you want to get better sleep during the week. And so you're only 
going to drink on Friday, Saturday. But I think that type of idea, really specific, measurable, and sort of centered on your goals as your why is really important. And then the last thing is let people know about it. I think we're all, humans are much more likely to change if they make themselves accountable. So whether that's sharing it on social media, sharing it with your friends or your partner, um, putting it up in your refrigerator so you sort of see your goal that you're working towards, whatever works for you. But I think bringing people in so that the people that love you and that you're interacting with regularly can help support and reinforce and maybe even make changes too if this is really something that you're working on. Because um, whenever you make a change, the easier we can make it, the more likely it is that you'll adapt it. So if you have friends who are you know, texting you to go out for drinks every night and you're trying to cut back or they're offering you wine when you come over, it's going to be a lot harder than if your friends are on board and say, hey, I know you're trying to make this change. And so let's go for a walk instead or go, you know, go out to a movie or do something that doesn't involve alcohol. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to uh, something that's been in my personal wellness toolbox for years now. That is a G1. It's my all-in-one daily greens powder that's got 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced nutrients in one convenient daily serving. With the antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, as well as prebiotics, probiotics, adaptogens, and superfoods, it's hard for me to think about what my life was like before I was regularly incorporating AG1 into my routine. No matter what is going on with my diet, how often I'm eating out, especially with the holidays, this can get a little bit nutty this time of year. I know that beginning my day with AG1 is me doing something really good and investing in my own personal health and well-being. With AG1, I have notable benefits to my energy levels. I feel more motivated and it actually tastes good. And I don't say that like it tastes good for a greens powder. Like I look forward to drinking my AG1 every single day as a standalone product. Of course, AG1 has a deal for you. If you want to get in on the gang today, cannot recommend it enough. Head on over to drinkag1.com slash hurdle to get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D absolutely free. Again, head on over to drinkag1.com slash hurdle to get a year's supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs with your order. Definitely, definitely. I'm happy you brought up the friendships, relationships angle and getting them on board with your choices. I think this can also shed a lot of light on the different relationships you have in your life if you are realizing that the people that you thought supported you are actually really resistant to your choice. For someone that is dealing with this conflict, so to speak, a little bit of friction when it comes to adopting this new lifestyle within their relationships, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think that can be really tough and also really enlightening to see that. Um, you know, I'd suggest first sharing your why, your purpose with that friend. If they're truly someone that loves and supports you, even if, um, you know, this choice may make them a little uncomfortable or they may not see sort of the reason behind it, if you explain that and why you want their help and sort of bring them in to be a partner with you, I think that um, that often can help. So to, again, explain what your goal is and ask them for a concrete thing. Like, do you think next week we could go to yoga class together instead of meeting for drinks um, so that they're then contributing and feeling like they're a partner with you and that there's something very clear that they can do that's still nice. If you find that someone's really like 
actively resisting that or sabotaging your goals, you may need to take a more active role in sort of removing yourself from different pieces of, of that relationship. You know, maybe that you are really thoughtful about what sort of things you say yes to and in which times you make plans with that person. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, we do sometimes outgrow relationships. And if you have decided that there's something that really matters to you and a person that you love doesn't support you in that, that is always a little worrisome because, um, you know, relationships, friendship or otherwise should be about helping you be your best self, whatever that means to you. Definitely. Yeah. It's uh, certainly something you see all over social media, to say the least. If someone's talking about their decision not to drink or perhaps the fact that they simply just enjoy drinking a mocktail more than a cocktail, the comments are always written with individuals who have many opinions on this. And sometimes it's truly, candidly, frightening to see. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think um, sometimes when you see that type of reaction, it may be that that person's feeling a little uncomfortable about their own choices. You know, it can be that you're shining a light or holding up a mirror that makes them have to reflect a little bit on alcohol's role in their life. Um, and so I think I was trying to approach those situations with the most generous inter- interpretation that maybe this person is struggling or doesn't understand why this is important to me. Um, but if they're struggling, I think the important thing to know is that there is help out there. And that's the other side of Sober Curious is that for people who try to make these changes and actually find whoa, this is actually harder than I thought it was going to be. And maybe alcohol is playing a different role in my life than I realized to know that treatment is available. Treatment works. Most people get better even when they have um, truly meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. I do think that this is another good opportunity when we're talking about relationships to talk about how one can transition socially when alcohol otherwise is traditionally a central point of gathering. What advice do you have for someone who is interested in sober curiosity and maybe removing alcohol entirely from their regular routine, but is scared about some of the repercussions of that? Yeah, I think the um, early on, the answer to that's different than later. So the hardest time to make a change is the first sort of three months. Once you get used to something and you start to see the benefits and you're more familiar with your routines, it becomes easier and easier. But in those early months, if this really matters to you and you're making this change, you want to set yourself up for success. And so that may mean making really thoughtful decisions about what types of activities you're doing, who you're surrounding yourself with, how you're connecting with people. Um, I think thankfully, especially as we emerge from the acute pandemic phases, there are more wonderful and diverse range of in-person activities you can do with people. You know, many people who are making changes to their alcohol use are also thinking about other health benefits. And so there's obviously lots of health-related activities you can do, running groups, yoga, mindfulness, getting involved in something that doesn't center around alcohol. And so maybe that's joining like an adult um, physical activity group, like a running group, or maybe it's joining a book group or something that doesn't center on sort of a social activity that's in a bar or revolving around sort of alcohol and a meal. If you're going over to someone's house, you can offer to bring something, bring a mocktail, bring, you know, whatever flavor of sparkling water you'd like so that you have an easy thing that you can put in your hand and sort of know that that's your plan walking in. Um, And then over time, as you become more comfortable with it, I think you can loosen that up a little bit. You know, like anything else, the maintenance phase is different than that early change phase. Um, But I do think those early days, you want to make it as easy as possible to not have alcohol in your mind and not be sort of having the default be that you have a drink in your hand. Yeah, this really brings me back to when I was in the height of my personal weight loss journey. And I had such a 
target such tunnel vision on what my goal was that I really adapted the behaviors when it came to going out to eat specifically with friends. Mm -hmm. That wasn't centralizing around alcohol at that time. It was centralizing around the different types of foods that I wanted to be around. But I knew that there were certain circumstances that actually made me feel good versus situations that made me feel out of control. And being able to temper that as I moved forward in that journey and get to what you're calling the maintenance phase. Now, at this chapter of my life, it's very different when it comes to making plans and going out to eat and whatnot. But in the height of that different era, it was entirely different. So I do think that there is a bit of comfort uh, after you are able to articulate your why, knowing that there might be some discomfort at one period, but that doesn't mean that it's going to feel like that forever. Yeah, I think that's so important. And what you just described, you know, you built a new skill set and a new toolkit over that time too. And so you're in a different place, you know, three, six, nine months down the road than you are when you're starting out. Your confidence and your ability to make different decisions around food, you're sort of seeing all the positive benefits and focus on your goal. That changes over time too. And the same's true for alcohol. I think um, food is often a really great one to think about, because I think many of us understand sort of complicated relationships of food and the spectrum of um, food and weight related issues and, and alcohol in a very similar way, you know, making different decisions. You can't avoid it entirely, just like you can't avoid food entirely. It's everywhere that you look, um, but really consciously setting yourself up for success to meet whatever goal you have in mind. Definitely. Now, I know another topic that a lot of individuals have questions on when it comes to sober curiosity is athletic performance. Generally speaking, let's go broad here. Can you enjoy alcohol regularly without hurting your athletic performance? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think, you know, it depends a little on what performance you're aiming for. So if you're training for the Olympics, you know, probably you don't want to drink and you also are making lots of other um, decisions about sort of absolutely maximizing your athletic performance. If you are, you know, running your first race or trying to stay in shape or, you know, making it to Peloton every morning, you know, drinking in those lower risk levels is probably not going to get in the way. So I think it's not a, an absolute question one way or the other. And again, depends on those other goals. You know, I, you're, you're sensing, I always have this kind of nuanced answer, but I do think it's such an important way to recognize that these are, um, issues that have lots of different factors that play into them. And I remember talking to a dear colleague of mine who is a leading alcohol expert in the globe, really. And I knew that he would drink an occasional cocktail. He wasn't someone who didn't drink at all. Um, and I was interested in his perspective on all of these new studies showing that really there was no safe amount of alcohol. Um, and his perspective was that our framing had been all wrong. This idea that you would ever drink for your health um, was really the wrong way to think about it. And that we do many things like drive in a car or go swimming or eat bacon that don't have zero risk. Many things that we enjoy in life have some amount of risk attached to them. And then we make calculated decisions on sort of how much risk are we comfortable taking and where do we want to cut back based on our own life and what our sort of goals are and what our personal situation is. And I think that's probably the best way to think of alcohol, that um, it's not something to start for health-related reasons. And also there are many things that we find pleasure in that, that don't have health-related benefits associated with them. 
that eating bacon, man, that's really going to be the thing that gets you at the end, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. If I go out because I'm eating bacon, then I feel like I'm doing it right. Now, we did address uh, perhaps some of the things to be mindful of when it comes to choosing your NA beverage. But when it comes to your choice alcohol, what should we be cognizant of? You know, so generally a drink is a drink, but having some sense of what the equivalence is across drinks. So, you know, a shot of liquor versus um, a glass of wine versus a can of beer. Um, we really sort of equate based on the grams of alcohol that are in that. So it's roughly kind of five ounces of table wine, um, you know, a can of regular alcohol by volume content beer or one and a half ounces of liquor would be equivalent in terms of the drink ratio. Um, you know, the lower alcohol by volume beverages are, you're going to be able to drink more without running into trouble. So that's one thing. If you're drinking, you know, a martini, it's going to have a lot more alcohol in it than if you're drinking a glass of, you know, 12% ABV wine at the table. So just thinking roughly that it's about the grams of alcohol that matter. And so therefore the volume contributes. I think, you know, does red wine have more sort of antioxidants? Maybe, but that's not really why we should be drinking red wine. So I wouldn't really think in the realm of like one is healthier than the other. I would just think of it as sort of the equivalence of drinks across. And then we've talked a lot about sort of sugar and weight and health. And definitely there's lots of like cocktails out there that have lots of sugar in them and um, lots of other things. So if you are being mindful of that, you know, being thoughtful about what the what sort of the context, the composition of whatever drink it is that you're drinking is in. And then lastly, if you're trying to make changes, you know, in the realm of not all or nothing, but just cutting back, mixing up your drinking. So you may like start with a glass of seltzer, have a glass of wine, switch back to seltzer so that it doesn't have to be that just because you're drinking, you're going to drink the whole night and everything that you order is an alcoholic beverage. But to give yourself some choice within that too can be helpful. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful recommendation there. I love the seltzer on and off. Now, I know we started this conversation chatting about alcohol use disorder, and I kind of want to circle back to that topic just briefly because I know that for some, maybe hearing the definition of what that entails and the different buckets of things that you should be looking for may have uh, raised a couple of red flags admittedly, those red flags can be really scary, right? So for someone who heard us talk about this today and is a little concerned about their use, what do you tell them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's absolutely scary to hear. I also want to name that there's still so much stigma about substance use disorder. This idea that, you know, if you have an alcohol use disorder, for example, there's something wrong with you that you don't have willpower, you're morally bad in some way. Um, I think, is very pervasive in our society, despite the fact that it's now more common to talk about these things as health issues. We've long approached it as an issue of sort of being bad or being weak. Um, and so first, just to name that and say that that's wrong and that is not true. This is a treatable health condition. It is not someone's fault. Um, and also that's very real to feel that sort of fear and sense of stigma. Um, I think, you know, the first thing to do is talk to someone and whether that is someone you trust in your life or, you know, I hope maybe people have a, a doctor or a healthcare provider they trust in their lives too. You know, in addition to being an addiction specialist, I'm also a primary care doctor. And if you have a primary care doctor, that's a perfect person to talk to about this because there are ways that we can assess in that encounter, whether or not you do in fact have an alcohol use disorder. And if you do, there's treatments that can help, including medication treatments that people don't know much about um, that can help you cut back how much you're drinking or stop entirely. And that is a really underutilized tool in addition to many other types of supports like therapy or group supports. 
even just talking about it openly with a friend, although that might feel scary at first, it's an opportunity for you to really be honest about what is happening with you and your body. And it's not until you take that opportunity to be honest that you can realize that you're really not as alone as you might feel, that there are so many other individuals who are dealing with similar circumstances, whether it be here as we talk about this alcohol use disorder or, you know, whatever else you may be dealing with. Totally. And, you know, we often say in the addiction world that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Actually, the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, Because many times when people are struggling with an alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, they feel really alone. And so even just reaching out and and having that connection with another human being can be therapeutic in and of itself. The way that I want to round us out here is talking about integration and that for someone who may be listening to this, we're recording this at the close to the end of 2023, many individuals may be thinking about doing some sort of a dry January. I'm curious to know your thoughts, your advice, your takeaways for the individual who's down to give it a try, but then realizes that they want to bring it back. Because I feel like that transitionary period can be pretty troublesome for some. So let's talk about that. What would you tell that person who maybe gave sober curiosity a try and then realized it's just not for them? Is there a safe way to integrate drinking back into your routine? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think first recognizing and sort of honoring the fact that you made a change and you did something different for your health that month, and that's awesome. And there may be lots of reasons why you're deciding that's not the right thing for you. Um, I think having that sense of what are lower risk drinking limits, especially if you're drinking above them before, um, like maybe you're drinking actually 10 or 14 drinks a week before you tried a period of not drinking, and now you want to start drinking again. It's an awesome opportunity to really keep it within that sort of healthier limit. Um, After a period of not drinking, your tolerance is going to go down. So the first thing to know is you're going to react differently to alcohol when you do introduce it back. So you may feel the effects of one or two drinks in a way that you wouldn't have if you'd been drinking that way consistently. So being cautious when you restart, but I would say being intentional is probably the most important thing. You've just done a really important thing for your health. You've explored your relationship with alcohol. You've made changes. Now's a great reset moment to really go into it with mindfulness to say, you know, I do actually value the role of alcohol in some ways in my life, but I want to keep it to lower risk limits. And so therefore I'm going to only drink, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or whatever. I'm going to drink every day, but only one drink a day. But to really be sort of clear with yourself about those guidelines, because otherwise it's easy to just fall right back in. And even worse, sometimes when we go through a period of kind of restricting something, there's a wish to do the opposite, to kind of, you know, binge afterwards and and um, celebrate the fact that you haven't been drinking for this month. And that can actually lead to sort of a worse outcome that you're then drinking even more. And so I think that that pause, that reflection, that mindfulness um, could be really helpful as you as you restart drinking. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I remember during the month of time that I was drinking a lot less, I realized that in the former, so in, you know, the rest of my life, so often I would go out with someone, whether it be for a work meeting or a date or just out with a friend. And I could tell you within the first 10 minutes what their drink order was, but I wouldn't be able to tell you much else. And so being able to come back into self, coming into body, it allowed me to be a little bit more present with where I was. And that experience taught me that so that when I moved forward and did integrate alcohol back into my life, I was a little bit more cognizant about what was happening in my interactions, the questions that I was asking, being where my feet are. And so I do think aside from the health benefits, 
benefits that you may find from lessening the amount of alcohol you're taking in. You'll actually also find some lasting insights about who you are and uh, the way that you conduct yourself when you're in social situations. I think that's so true and so important. And the flip side, if you find you can only tolerate hanging out with someone, if you have three or four drinks, that may be you know, a moment to say, hey, is this really a relationship I want to spend my very precious time with? Um, so it definitely is a great opportunity for reflection. This makes me laugh about a friend who once told me that she had what she liked to call summer boyfriend and summer boyfriend could only be in the picture when there was like fun and sun <laughs> and alcohol and cocktails. And then she was like, this convert, this relationship actually is extremely unhealthy for me. So summer boyfriend's got to go. Totally. Yeah. Those moments of clarity can be really important. For sure. Now, before I let you go today, I know we covered a ton in our conversation. Is there anything else that you think that we should touch on, Dr. Wakeman, before I let you go today? No, I think this is great. We covered a full range and I'm just so happy that people are listening and interested in this topic. I love it. Well, of course, thank you so much for your time. Your care and concern in this conversation is super helpful. Uh, For those that want to follow along with you or want to get more information, where would you recommend that they do that? Sure. So you can find me. I'm still on X or formerly Twitter um, and also on Instagram at Dr. Sarah Wakeman um, or check out our website, um, mdb-substance-use-services. Thank you so much. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. 